faithful to God. Where does faithfulness to God come from? You've probably learned that faithfulness to God doesn't come from resolutions or willpower or a spiritual to-do list. No more than a good marriage comes from determining to say, I love you every day. Or a great relationship with your kid comes from cooking and cleaning for them. Now, faithfulness to God is a matter of the heart. And matters of the heart are fueled by love. And here's the thing. It's not our love for God, but it's his love for us. See, our faithfulness to God comes from seeing his faithfulness to us. Our sermon text today is a display of God's faithfulness. Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Isaiah 49. If you didn't bring a Bible, please take the black one at your feet and open it up, follow along. It will be really helpful as we study God's Word for you to be able to see the words on the page. So our sermon text is Isaiah chapter 49, all of it through the beginning of chapter 50. This sermon text includes the second of four servant songs. We're going to hear the servant say, God has sent me to redeem his unfaithful people because of his faithfulness. And so we're going to focus on three things in our, in our study of this text to get today. God's people, God's servant, and God's faithfulness. God's people are unfaithful. God's servant is sent to redeem and restore God's unfaithful people. And God's faithfulness is on display through the redemption of his unfaithful people. So with Bibles open, take a look at chapter 49. And just as an overview, it'd be really helpful for us to understand the situation here. If you've been with us for the past 26 weeks, you will know the situation in Isaiah well. But here's what we have learned from the very beginning of the book, that God's people are unfaithful. Now, we don't have to look at them to see that, do we? We can just... Look at our own hearts and understand that God's people are unfaithful. Chapter 39, God told them, because of your sin, because of your unfaithfulness, I am going to allow an enemy nation to come and take you into captivity. And through that captivity, I'm going to purge your faith so that you come out of that captivity with a greater faith. I promise you that not only am I going to send you into captivity, but I promise you I will redeem you out of captivity. 
So right now, at this point in the book, chapter 49, which is a good ways in now, God has prophesied that his people Judah are going to be taken into captivity. And look at verse 14 of chapter 49. Israel feels like, look look what they cry out. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. In captivity, God's unfaithful people recognize their unfaithfulness and they feel forsaken and forgotten. Look at verse 21. Israel says we're bereaved and we're barren. We're exiled and we're put away. Word put away is divorced. So Israel feels like they have been divorced from God, exiled from God, and they're bereaved and they feel like women who are barren and producing no fruit or no offspring. In chapter 50, verse 1, this is just setting the stage, giving the context of the fact that God's people are unfaithful. Chapter 50, verse 1, the Lord said, look at this, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. God says, I sold you into slavery and I sent you away from me because of your iniquities and your transgressions. Now, before you think that God is awful, go back and reread the first 39, even up to 48 chapters of Isaiah. From the very beginning, Isaiah 1, here's what God said about his people. Ah, Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. God's people are unfaithful. Chapter 1 through 39, God confronted the sin of his people. And he said that you're, you're not trusting me. You're trusting your own resources. You're trusting your own power. You're trusting your own abilities. You are trusting other nations. And you've even been trusting other gods. You might remember in chapter 9 and 10. We heard an oracle, a poem, that I and I sort of gave this title to it. The relentless and unstoppable judgment of God against the relentless and unyielding wickedness of Israel. Israel's sin was not just a little bit here and there. They weren't just a few, you know, innocent mistakes. These people were bent on wickedness and following after the religions of other nations. And so God says, listen, I I love you too much to leave you in that way. And so God sends them into exile to purge their faith so that they can come back out of exile purified. I wonder if you can identify with God's unfaithful people. Robert Robinson in 1758 could. 
Robert Robinson was the wrote, the one who wrote this refrain. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Listen, friends, if that's you, then this passage of Scripture is going to be a great encouragement to you. Because seeing God's faithfulness fuels our faithfulness. God's people are unfaithful. And so what we see in the first part of our text is that God's servant is sent to redeem God's unfaithful people. God's servant is sent to redeem God's unfaithful people. That's chapter 49, verse 1 through 13. Let me read this first part of our sermon text together. This is God's word. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me by name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, To bring back Jacob, back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes and they who prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out! To those who are in darkness, appear. 
They shall feed along the ways, on all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by strings of water, springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. We'll stop reading for at that point for a few moments and let me show you that God's servant is sent to redeem God's unfaithful people. This section, whether you were able to pick up on this or not, this particular section is the second of four servant songs, at least verse 1 through 6 or 7 is. It's the second servant song. This is the Lord's servant announcing his calling, his mission, his work, and his victory. Notice in verse 1 through 3, the servant's calling is announced. Listen to me. He says, the Lord called me from the womb. And notice that he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And then The servant says, I'm like a, an effective weapon in God's hands that is hidden and then brought out to do battle. But notice especially that this servant's weapon is his mouth. It's the ministry of truth and the gospel. And we know that this servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Jesus in John chapter one is the Word made flesh. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, a picture of Jesus as the rider on the white horse who who is called faithful and true. And notice that his robe is dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 15 says this, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The servant is the word of God. His greatest weapon, his greatest reign in his rule is the word of God. It's truth. We hear this in Hebrews chapter 4. That says this, the word of God is a, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And when Jesus came and ministered, He said to all of us, if you abide in my word, 
you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, the servant is called and equipped as God's word to deliver the message of truth. The question is, will you hear it and respond? Will you turn away from deceit, every other voice, and listen to the truth from the Lord Jesus Christ, God's servant? As we go through this first part, verse 1 through 13, we not only notice his calling, but we see his mission. In verse 4, he says, listen, I've labored in vain. I've been preaching this truth, but they're not responding. So what does God say to him? God says to his servant in verse 5, this is wonderful. He broadens his mission. And we saw this play out in the Gospels, didn't we? Verse 5, now the Lord says, verse 6, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up Jacob and Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations so that my salvation can reach to the ends of the earth. God did not just send Jesus to save the Jews, but God said that's too light of a thing. God says, I want my truth, my salvation to go to every nation on the face of the earth. And then in verse 7, we see that success is guaranteed. The Lord tells his servant that kings, even though they despise you and abhor you, kings and princes are going to prostrate themselves. Why? The end of verse 7, because of the Lord who is faithful. Then in verse 8 through 12, we see the the servant's work is described. In verse 8, The servant is the covenant for God's people. In verse 8 and 9, the servant is the Lord of Jubilee. Look at the language there in verse 8 and 9. What did the servant come to do? To establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, and to say to the prisoners, come out. That is the language of Jubilee. On the 50th year, in God's economy... On the 50th year, the land was given back. Heritages were restored. Prisoners were released. And the work of the servant of God is to rebuild lives and pardon criminals. The work of the servant in verse 9 and 10 is to Bring God's sheep, God's wandering, God's unfaithful, God's lost sheep back to him. Notice there in verse 9 and 10 that he is the one who feeds them and leads them. He's the one who squashes all the mountains and raises the valleys so that we have a clear way to God. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You follow me and I will lead you back to God. And then in verse 13, all heaven and earth and mountains break forth in song because of the work of the servant. He is 
the compassion of God for God's afflicted people. So God's servant, or pardon me, God's people are unfaithful, but God doesn't leave them in their unfaithfulness. God sends his servant to redeem his unfaithful people. That's beautiful. That's grace. Aren't you glad for that? Fellow friend who is prone to wander. This week, as I was thinking about this, I I took away from here the fact that God's servant calls everyone us, every one of us to faith in him. God's servant calls for our faith. God's servant is sent and he calls us to follow him. And those who follow Jesus by faith are, are redeemed from sin and restored to the blessings that for which God created us. But only through Jesus. We've got to follow Jesus. We can't ignore him or deny him. We must follow Jesus. God's servant who was sent calls for our faith. If you were to read back through that text, what you'll see is that he's the skilled warrior. We're the sinners who need to be rescued with his truth. He's the faithful servant. We're those for whom he labors tirelessly. He's the light for the nations. We are those on whom his light shines. He's the rejected king. We are those for whom he endured rejection to save. He's the covenant for God's covenant-breaking people. He's the Lord of Jubilee. We're those whose lives need to be rebuilt, whose crimes must be pardoned. He's the shepherd of God's flock, and we're the sheep that he leads back to God. He is the redeemer of creation, and we are those who are afflicted, who receive the comfort and compassion of God. Friends, God's servant calls for our faith. God's servant also determines our mission. Just as God sent his servant on a mission, God sends us on a mission. His mission becomes our mission. Jesus' mission to rescue us from sin sends us to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our children, to our family members, to do everything we can with the word of truth to help rescue them from the curse of sin and death. The fact that Jesus is a light for the nation calls for us to love every race, every kind of person. And it crushes any sense of prejudice. Jesus had no prejudice for any of us. How could we possibly look down our nose at anyone else? His mission becomes our mission. His ministry of the word becomes our ministry to one another. Because he came as God's servant with the effective tool of truth, then that's our most effective tool with one another. 
If we really want to help each other, then we minister God's word to one another. God's people are unfaithful. God's servant is sent to redeem God's unfaithful people. And the second half of our sermon text shows us that God's faithfulness is on display in redeeming his unfaithful people. God's faithfulness is on display. This is truly amazing. I see in here five displays of God's faithfulness. It's as if five different times God assures his people, I know that you're prone to wander, but I'm prone to faithfulness. I know that you're covenant breakers, but it's my nature to be a covenant keeper. Five different times, God assures and reassures us that he will be faithful. And in the end, it's his faithfulness to us that fuels our faithfulness to him. So let's read 49.14 through the end of our sermon text, chapter 50, verse 3. Chapter 49, verse 14. But Zion, which is another name for God's people, Israel. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. God says back, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Verse 17. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see they all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Verse 19. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? 
Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried away on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Verse 24. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey from the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they'll be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Chapter 50. Thus says the Lord. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called... Was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth. They're covering. We'll stop with the reading of God's word there. Friends, what we have seen is that God's people are unfaithful. And that God sent his servant to redeem God's unfaithful people. And that that is a display of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to us is what fuels our faithfulness to him. What I want you to see here is a display of God's faithfulness that will cause you to see how much he loves you, how much he has done to secure you and keep you by his grace to redeem you from all of the things that have captured your heart. So that after seeing this display of God's grace, you out of the very love for your heart for him will be faithful to him. In this last text, God shows us five displays of his covenant faithfulness. In verse 14 and 
through 16. Did you notice that, that God said, can a woman forget her nursing child? Ladies, as you nurse your babies, can you forget them? Well, God says, even if they do, I will never forget you. He even allows for a sleepy mother to fall asleep. He even allows for a mother to say, I'm so tired of this baby. I wish I would have never had it. He even allows for a mother's love to stop. But God says, even if they do, I will never forget you. And then he tells them why. (laughs) One of my favorite things I read this past week, verse 16. Behold, look, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Oh, man. God says, I'm so committed to you that I have engraved your name in the palm of my hand. Friends, that's faith. The Lord has engraved their names in his palms. The second assurance of God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people. Verse 17 through 18. The Lord Lord says, I have sent you into captivity. I have destroyed your city. Everything is laid to waste. Everything that you have ever known and loved in your life is now rubble. Look what he says. Verse 18. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. The Lord says, I will craft your failures into beauty. I will pick up the rubble of your life and fashion it into an earring and necklaces. I will adorn you out of the beauty of the ashes of your life, just like a bride adorned. Listen, friends, that's God's faithfulness to us. He takes our unfaithfulness and makes us beautiful through it. Incredible. The third assurance of God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people. Verse 19 through 23, the longest section. To this bereaved and barren, exiled and cast off, divorced nation. Verse 19 through 23. God says, I know that you feel like you have been cast off and that you have no children. But I am going to bring you sons and daughters from the nations so many that when they came, when they come to you, they're going to say to you, this place is too small for us. Through the gospel, God is bringing sons and daughters to his people to fill up his kingdom. Look there at verse 20. This place is too narrow for me. You're going to say, 
who bore me these? And God says, I did. I brought them from the nations. And how will they come? Oh my goodness, how beautiful is this? Verse 22. He said, I am going to wave the banner of my salvation. Now, do you remember what a signal is? It's like the flag in war from old times where where God calls his troops to himself. And he's waving this. See there in verse 22, he says, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal. Do you remember who the signal is? Chapter 11, the signal is the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, I am going to wave salvation by grace in Christ alone to the nations so that everyone can come here. And what happens? Oh, my. Sons and daughters are going to come from all of the nations. How? Look, queens are going to carry them. Kings are going to put their daughters on their shoulders and march them to Zion. And when they get there, wicked kings will lay down and prostrate themselves in submission to King Jesus. The Lord will bring sons and daughters from the nation. The fourth assurance of God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people in verse 24. God says, I know that you think Babylon is so mighty that you can't be delivered from them. Look at verse 24. I know that you think Babylon is such a tyrant that you'll never be rescued. And normally that would be true. But... I will contend with those who contend with you. I will make your enemies drink their own blood as if they're getting drunk on wine. And he tells them why. So that when I'm done, all flesh will know that I am the Lord, the Savior, the Redeemer. Wait, that's not what it says. Look at verse 26. So that all flesh will know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer. Not just the mighty one, but the mighty one of Jacob. God has tied himself to his covenant people in such a way that God wants to make a name for himself by giving grace to these sorry, unfaithful people. That doesn't spur us on to more unfaithfulness. His faithfulness to us fuels our faithfulness to him. And we say, what love. What faithfulness and commitment. The Lord has chosen to be known as Israel's Savior, Redeemer, and Mighty One. And he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, the Israel of God. And all who are in Christ become the new Israel, the new people of God by faith, through grace, in Christ. And then finally, the the fifth assurance of God's faithfulness to his covenant people, chapter 50, verse 1 through 3. The Lord says, There you are in Babylon. Let me ask you a question. 
Where's your mother's certificate of divorce? Where are all the creditors who I owe? You were sold. You were sent away because of your sin. But look at verse 2. Why, when I call for you, is no one answering? God says, I have exercised my faithfulness and my power in such a way to come redeem you. I have shown you my desire and my power to redeem. And so when I call for you, respond to me. Turn away from your gods. Turn away from yourself and trust me. The Lord emphasizes his desire and power to redeem and calls them to step forward in repentance and faith to meet him when he comes. God's faithfulness is on display in redeeming his unfaithful people. And friends, that does something to our hearts. When you really see that, and I hope that you will see that not only here in these few moments, but that you will go home and maybe reread this text and see it again and just savor God engraving you on his palms. God giving fruit so abundant that when you look around and you say, where did, where did all this spiritual fruit come from? God says, I did that for you. Three big takeaways for me for this week that I encourage for you. God's faithfulness, that's our rest. That's our rest, friends. See, the security of our salvation, the peace and rest for our souls, is not situated in our ability to keep our covenant with God. The security of our salvation, the peace and rest of our souls, is entirely outside of us. It's in Jesus' ability to keep his covenant with God. And in God's love for his son and for all who are in Christ by faith. When I situate the security of my soul in God's faithfulness, now I feel secure. But as long as it's dependent on me keeping my covenant, I never know whether I'm a Christian or not. Because at any given moment of the day, I'm thinking and acting like I'm not. Not only is it our rest, rest, but God's faithfulness is the fuel for our faithfulness. It doesn't just sit us back to do nothing, but it becomes the fuel that propels our faithfulness to be and do everything that God has created us to be and do. Our faithfulness to God comes from seeing his faithfulness to us. And it it fuels us to do the hard things and live following and in obedience to Jesus. Listen, friends, God's faithfulness to you is why your marriage has to portray the gospel. It's why uh, your marriage is till death do you part. It's, it's why when your marriage gets difficult, when your spouse is unlovely, you remember God's faithfulness to you 
and you give faithfulness to them. God's faithfulness makes all the difference in the really hard moments of life. Just remember his commitment and his eternal love for you and let it fuel you to give that grace to unlovely people. God's faithfulness is our rest. God's faithfulness is the fuel for our faithfulness. And then finally, God's faithfulness is the foundation of our trust. It's it's the foundation, bedrock, for why we trust God and actually live according to His Word rather than doing our own thing. He says as much in, in verse 23. Look at verse 23 again. He said, when I do all of this, then you will know two things. Verse 23 then you will know I am the Lord. You will know that I am the self-sufficient God who has all the power in the world and I exercise my power to redeem sinners like you. I'm the Lord. And you'll know a second thing. You will know that those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. To wait on God means that I can't do this myself. He can. It means that it's not happening yet. I have to wait. And it means me waiting for him to do it rather than me figuring out another way. So those who wait on the Lord are those who trust God ultimately. And that's the whole theme of Isaiah. Trust me. I am the Lord your God. God's faithfulness is the foundation of our trust. He has kept every one of his promises. He will keep his promises to you. Don't get ahead of him. Don't disobey. Don't compromise. Wait. Waiting on the Lord means that we continue to trust his strange providence to accomplish his good purposes, even in the most difficult and darkest of days. What have we seen? God's people are unfaithful. But God's servant sent to redeem his unfaithful people. And that gospel is God's faithfulness on display. Friends, I pray that you will see God in all of his faithfulness to you and that that will capture your heart for him. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your love and grace and mercy to sinners like us. Thank you that you know in advance you are making a covenant with covenant breakers. And that's why you have 
fulfilled your covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ, who never broke the covenant, but who fulfills your covenant with a perfect eternal faithfulness. And that even when we can't hold on to you, you, by your grace, hold on to us. I pray that you would please put that gospel on display through our lives and our families and our church for your glory. In the advance of the gospel of Jesus, we pray.